Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio's A Date with Destiny for Monday, March the 23rd, 2020. I'm your host and author of the book, Destiny Awaits, The Pouring Out of Wisdom for Humanity to Drink, Lisa M. Saunders, coming to you from Owings Mills, Maryland. This broadcast is being sponsored by Masterminds, LLC, inspiring and empowering people to achieve a greater destiny. We are super excited this evening about being with you and to be able to share love and wisdom with the desire to uplift, inspire, motivate, and empower you to live a more peace-filled, joyful, and loving life. So you can download this podcast from iTunes and also receive it via my website, yourdestinyawaits.net, or simply by Googling us, Blog Talk Radio, A Date with Destiny. Also, Follow us on Twitter at Lease101, that's L-Y-S-E-101. If you would like to become a sponsor or to get more exposure for your literary work or business, you can send a message via my website, info at yourdestinyawaits.net, or via my Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash destiny 101 So once again, we are excited to be able to share with our listeners information from people of all walks of life that we believe will inspire, motivate, and empower you. We are happy to be celebrating our eighth year of broadcasting and can't wait to share some great things from some really extraordinary people that we have coming up for the rest of this season. So tonight we have another amazing show. Tonight's topic is women's health. So if you have a question that you would like to ask our guest, you can give us a call at 929-477-4071. That's 929-477-4071. And we will do our best to fit you in. So joining us this evening to talk about women's health is Dr. Sonia Zaft. Dr. Zaft is a longtime resident of Maryland. She received her medical degree from Harvard University of Medicine in Washington, D.C. She completed her OBGYN residency at Sinai Hospital of Baltimore, where she continues as an attendant attending physician. She has been in private practice at Aurora women's health in Owings Mills for 16 years. She is married and is a proud mother of two wonderful daughters. She loves travel, exploring nature, and sports. She is passionate about women's health and enjoys providing care to her patients. So A Date with Destiny would like to welcome Dr. Sonia Zaft to the show. We're going to give her a little bit of applause because we're so excited to have her with us this evening. Hello, Dr. Zaft. How are you this evening? Hi, Lisa. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we are just pleased to have you with us, um, especially considering all that's going on in the world right now. So we're just going to address the dinosaur. I was going to say elephant, but the dinosaur that's sitting right dab, smack dab in the middle of our planet at the moment, Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the COVID-19. Um, how are you all uh, um, handling it um, 
in your profession, and are you still seeing patients during this time? Yeah, so it's been very challenging as it has for, you know, everybody, no matter, you know, if you're in the healthcare profession or not. Mm -hmm. But we are continuing to see patients. However, because of the restrictions, um, we are limiting the kinds of visits that we have right now. And the Mm -hmm. patients who are overall doing well and don't have anything active going on, we're asking that they postpone their visits to a safer time um, just so that we don't increase their exposure and also the exposure of our staff, doctors, and other patients. Um, but we are still continuing to see our patients that need us um, for specific problems and also our obstetric patients who are having babies. They need us more than ever right now. Yeah. Um, I read an article, I think it was a week or so ago, where there was a, a, a baby that was born with it. I don't know if you saw that. Um, yeah, I think yeah. Um, so. I think that was my out of the UK. And mm-hmm. so far from all the evidence that we have from China um, and some of the other countries, we do feel pretty strongly that we don't think COVID goes from mom to baby, meaning vertical transmission. So okay. we are you know, reassured about that, and we've been trying to reassure patients. Um, I think that case may have been that the baby was exposed after birth. Um, oh. but, but I don't know the specifics. Um, but I don't. We don't believe that it, it goes from mom to baby. Okay, in, because that was in, in very that was, prior to pregnancy delivery. Yeah, because that was you know one of my concerns. I'm like, well, because you know, this is so new. You know, the virus is, is so new, and they're still trying to figure mm-hmm. it out. But you know, that kind of shocked me because I'm like, okay, so does that mean that if you're pregnant and you get the virus, you transfer it to your unborn child. So thank you for sharing that with us and clearing that up. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. We don't think that's the case. However, you know, pregnant patients, just by the fact that they are pregnant are at an immunosuppressed level, just because that's a physiologic change that they go through. So their bodies don't, you know, attack their own babies. Um, They are at higher risk of getting any sort of infection and they are at higher risk of a respiratory um, illness um, affecting them more seriously just because it's harder to clear a respiratory infection when they have right. you know, a pregnancy pushing up on their lungs and uh, things like that. So how are you able to monitor the patients that you may have now that are with child? And um, do you have any advice for our listeners who may be carrying uh, what I'm, I'm quite sure that their own doctors have told them some things as well, but do you have any added advice that you could share? Yeah, I don't have any specific um, advice for them other than, you know, just it's a very difficult time, and I really feel for the pregnant patients yeah. because this is a time when they really should just feel the joy of pregnancy and their family yeah. and friends should be able to you know, love on them and give them a ton of support. And unfortunately, you know, they're not able to get that. So I would say just, you know, stay as positive as possible, eat well, get rest, keep your immunity up. Um, Certainly if you were to have any symptoms that would be concerning like cough, fever, chills, Mm -hmm. um, any sort of respiratory concerns, they should tell their doctors immediately. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, because yeah, that's that's just a, it's just not a good time. Um, and I'm quite sure that just to quell the um, the panic that one right. would have. I mean, it's it's panic enough when you're not carrying a child, and then it's you know now we have this to be concerned with on top of everything else that you go through when you're pregnant. So yeah, my heart exactly. goes out to those ladies as well. Yes, and before we continue. Yeah, before we continue on, I'm told that, you know, uh, you were having trouble getting in with the number that I had given you. So I want to just put another number out there for our listeners in case you want to call in. Um, Try the number 845-241-9944. That's 845-241-9944, and I'm hoping that that works better. Um, So... I put out on social media for, uh, you know, young ladies or women, period, from any age group that may have had a question to uh, send them to me, and I would um, do my best to um, get 
some of them asked so that um, you could just share the information for everyone because I'm quite sure. You know how one person might ask a question and then, you know, it answers the question for so many more. So I was quite pleased that I had some questions actually from our younger um, audience. And so we're going to start off at the, at, you know, the, the beginning, I guess. I don't know if it's the beginning, but, you know, with um, pap screening and things like that. So mm-hmm. because I know that um, I'm always talking to young ladies, you know, telling them why they should go, how important it is. But I want them to hear from you, right from sure. you, uh, to talk about pap screening, why it is important, and the process. Sure, sure. So first, you know, you mentioned to start from the beginning. So the American College of OBGYN, which is sort of our governing body for OBGYNs, recommends that Mm -hmm. girls start seeing the GYN doctor as early as 13 to 15. A lot of them don't need us at that time because they don't have any specific concerns or problems. Um, And I would say most people um, that we see, we start seeing them between the ages of 15 and 18. Mm-hmm. A lot of them don't even require a physical exam in terms of a pelvic exam at this time, but it's a really important time to just start the conversation with their providers about, um, you know, their periods. Um, we talk a lot about contraception, um, mm-hmm. sexually transmitted infections, um, physical changes, and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. You talked about the pap smear. Pap smear is a screening test for cervical cancer. It is a mm-hmm. test that is done through a pelvic exam. It's a fairly simple test. Um, a lot of people come in very worried about it, but usually it takes not more than about 10 seconds, um, and it's a little swab of the mm-hmm. cervical cells, and basically that starts at age 21. Okay. Um, as long as pap smears are normal, then women can space them out every three years, And then Mm -hmm. once they reach the age of 30, if we are able to do what's called an HPV test along with the pap smear, um, then we can space them out to even between three and five years. Oh, wow. Okay. So there's a misconception going around that you have to get your pap smear once a year. So that's not true. Well, a lot of providers um, will do pap smears yearly depending on what's going on with their patients. So there's some patients who may have um, a little bit higher risk or maybe we were following up on an abnormal pap smear um, prior, so they may require more frequent pap smear um, exams. Okay, so let's go back to what you said as far as the age group, um, when they should start going. So between the ages of 13 and 15 and then 15 through 18 for the pelvic, you said, I believe? Yeah, I would say, you know, right, we do see girls, um, I would say, sometimes between 13 and 15, but most commonly they start seeing us for the first time between 15 and 18. Okay, so that, because the reason I asked that question is, I guess, um, for not just the young ladies that are, well, specifically for them, I mean, because this, what we're talking about right now is very important, especially when it comes to, um, this is when your hormones are jumping and they're Mm -hmm. young and they might, you know, be experimenting with sex and so on and so forth. So this would be the perfect time to come in to talk about maybe um, contraceptive, like, you know, contraceptive. Contraceptives, contraceptives, like you said, um, and is that something that they should be ashamed of? Because I know for a fact um, some young ladies do not want to come in, and even their mothers don't want to bring them in because they are, you know, ashamed of. Well, you know, I don't. What are they going to think if I my daughter is this? You know what I mean? So if you could right. just kind of put shed a little light on that part. Absolutely. So that's a common fear, I think, that a lot of young girls have. Um, What they should understand is that the relationship with their GYN is really very important. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, that first visit is going to be a conversation. It's going to be a conversation of what their concerns are. Um, Like you said about contraception, we'll go through all the options. Most importantly, um, when they are talking with the GYN about these very personal issues, Mm-hmm. Everything in that visit is confidential, meaning okay. that that GYN becomes their confidential doctor. They will not send any of that information to their 
parents or anything oh, like good. that. They can ask them anything that they want. Um, and really it's a time to get all the information that they need so they can make the best decisions for their health. Okay, so their parent is not going to be in the room when you have this talk with them. Well, a lot of the time, you know, moms do bring their daughters in. Um, mm-hmm. And I would say for the most part, you know, we do have a conversation together um, with mom and with the daughter and with um, the provider, with myself. And mm-hmm. then there's a portion of the visit where I do ask them to step out just because there's things okay. that maybe would come up um you know, just between us um, and some things that maybe the patient would not want to share with their parent. Got you. Yeah, because I think um, when they hear that, that maybe make it a little easier for them to make the decision, okay, well, yeah, I don't mind going in if I know that, you know, what I share confidentially with the doctor, they're not going to tell my mom, (laughs) you know. Because um, a lot of times, you know, young ladies, we do, we were young ones too, so we do understand, of course, um, yes. you know, uh, the difficulty of that time of your life. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also very important for you to have this discussion with your mom uh, to um, encourage her to take you in to see the doctor because sure. this is a lifelong thing. It just it doesn't start. Exactly. It starts here, but then it's a continuation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is um, a continuation, that's for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. And and so if you find a um an OBGYN like the one that I have who I just adore, um she is just absolutely amazing. Um you will really have a friend because, again, you know, um, this is what she does for a living, and so she knows pretty much everything before you're even going to say it because I'm quite sure you've seen it all. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Most, most things, yeah. I would say I would say most of it, yeah. Not, not much surprises me anymore. <laughs> I can only imagine. What made you get into this um, particular field? I think just because it, you know, I get to see women of all different ages, which I really enjoy. Um, mm-hmm. I have patients in their 90s, believe it or not. And oh, wow. They, yeah, and they come for their visits. And I would say most of the time, it's, I feel like it's a social visit. I get more out of it than they do because I just love talking to them. But, oh, good. Um, but that's really, you know, it gives me a lot of um, enjoyment, a lot of satisfaction taking care of all ages. And, you know, delivering babies is a nice um, thing to do as well. That's um, a wonderful, beautiful experience to be involved in. And we get to take care of problems that we treat surgically. So that's um, something pretty exciting as well. So there's there's a lot lot of interesting things in my field that I still keep coming back for. I just love it. Now, after you deliver, how long do you stay with the mother and the baby? Um, you don't end up being, so you're not a pediatrician, but as far no. as the birth, and so, so how long does that relationship, you know, last? Yeah, so once someone has a baby, um, they're still technically under obstetric care, um, usually okay. for about six to eight weeks, depending on if they had a vaginal delivery at six weeks or a C-section is about eight weeks. Um, mm-hmm. So we do still see them you know, um, for those follow-up visits. And then once they've completed that time, then we kind of send them out into the, you know, real world to start normal activities and things like that. But most of those patients just stay with us. So they become our our longtime GYN patients. um, And we see them, you know, for the remainder of of their lives, usually. That's interesting. And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about this because um, I guess, you know, so many things change, um, especially in your field, like um, probably, you know, I don't know how quickly it does, but one of the questions I guess I have for myself, um, do 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 they still use the epidural? I mean, or is it something different? Because now I'm like, okay, with the technology that we have, it's just interesting to find out the new things that have, you know, come out. Because um, it's been, what, over hmm, 
29 years for me. <laughs> wow. So I'm sure in 29 yeah. years, <laughs> a lot has you, changed. <laughs> well, actually, I think you'd probably be surprised to know that really not a lot has changed. Really? With regard to that. Yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's all pretty much the same in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, the epidural is, is really the only option that we have in terms of true pain management during pregnancy okay. and during delivery. Um, mm-hmm. We have some, you know, IV medicine that we can give and things like that, but it's not equivalent to an epidural. So that's okay. still the tried and true way of, of women getting that effective pain relief uh, during labor and delivery. Mm-hmm. And ladies, yeah. let me tell you, whoo. I highly recommend it. <laughs> I do I've had two of I've had two of them myself, so I highly recommend them as well. <laughs> yes, girl, cuz I remember the first time like with my first child which was 34 years, almost 34 years ago, I was trying to be that superwoman. Oh, I've got this. I can do it and I'm going to do it without and blah natural blah 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 blah. But natural just, you know, natural to me now it has a whole different meaning like if you need something to help you um you're still delivering it naturally but you're just having a little help with the pain in the process exactly exactly <laughs> you know i i, I would, would agree i mean i yeah. had a patient who mm-hmm. was a dentist deliver and she was equating women getting epidurals and labor to um, people getting anesthesia for pulling out a tooth or doing a dental oh, procedure. No. Yeah. And they were like, well, why would we not give you anesthesia for that? Why wouldn't we make that process a little easier? Yeah. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. That is a good analogy. I like that. Exactly. Yeah. So, well, thank you for sharing all of that. Okay, so one more question about this, and I'm going to move on to the next thing. But um, I, I'm finding now a lot of women are choosing to do home births and um, getting a um, midwife and all of that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So do you, you know, how do you feel about that? Well, you know, I don't, I don't really support home births just because we do see all the potential things that can go wrong during even seemingly mm-hmm. the most normal labor um, and birth process. So I still feel very strongly that a hospital delivery is the safest um, way mm-hmm. to have a baby in this country. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we've come a long way, and there's still countries out there that, you know, women are unable to access hospital care for their babies and for their deliveries. Right. So I think, we, you know, we have so much to be thankful for, um, and we right. have a great system for it. So I think, you know, women really... Um, should choose a, a hospital birth. And more and yeah. more hospitals are taking steps to try to take the medical aspect, you know, out of a normal birth and delivery process. So we try to try to be hands-off as much as possible and let that whole experience just, you know, take over and continue uh, for the benefit of the patient. Um, mm-hmm. We only try to intervene when we need to. Right, so. right. Yeah, okay. Well, you know, that's that's good information right there because I hear a lot of women, you know, um are just going a different route. Um mm-hmm. and I you know, me personally, I'm like, okay, whatever you feel as though you need to do, but I want to be in the hospital where they've got everything. <laughs> like right. everything. But that's just right. me. So So let's right. move and on if, to um, go ahead. No, go. No, I was just gonna say if there are women out there who choose to do that, they should mm-hmm. just make sure they have a plan in place, you know, if something yeah. does go wrong, a hospital nearby, um, you know, just, just have a plan just so that you know, Absolutely. they can be taken care of and the baby as well. Absolutely. And um, I don't know if you know this or not, but um, I don't think I've told you this or not. But anyway, I um, volunteer at the University of Maryland NICU unit. Um, oh. I'm a cuddler. Yeah, as a cuddler. Aww. And so, oh, my gosh, that's one of the best experiences of my life, um, just to be able to. And I'm also a Reiki practitioner. So, you know, when I go in um, and spend time with the little ones, I always say that they're fresh off the heavenly press. They're just like little angels, you know. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, it's just precious to me just to see um, the preemies and um it, I, I can't even really describe it, um, 
but I'm quite sure that you have um, had your share of delivering, you know, um, preemies. How how do you how do you handle that? Like, how do you? Because I mean, I know that you've done this for a long time. Does it ever get old? I, it doesn't get old because each delivery is unique. Um, mm-hmm. Each delivery has its own set of, um, you know, details that are different. And, you know, I can't remember all the all the deliveries I've done, but there's certain deliveries that, that I do remember, and they stand out for various reasons. Right. These are, are always unique because, you know, usually they um, – you know, there's a set of circumstances around the delivery of a preemie that, yeah. you know, complicates the mom's health and obviously the baby's health and the things that we right. have to really uh, pay attention to. But they are tiny little miracles. Oh, my and really gosh. They are. And the, and the NICU services that we have in this country are absolutely amazing. Yeah. And we can only really do our job because we have amazing NICU and vice versa. You know, we yeah. work hand in hand with them. Um, even when we, before preemies deliver, we always have them um, sort of aware, and they talk to the moms even before delivery and prepare them. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a good collaborative process. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just, my hat is off, and I admire, like, just the work that you all do, just bringing life into this world. It's like, wow, you know, thank you. Thank you for your service. Oh. <laughs> So, okay, so moving on to my next um, uh, uh, topic is, I guess, um, we'll move up in age a little bit and uh, with the menopause, okay? Mm-hmm. What age does, and I know everybody's different, but, you know, generally what age does menopause start for most women? So the average age in this country is 51 for menopause, um, mm-hmm. But I would say most women experience it between ages 50 and 52. So that's, okay. You know, so some are before, some are a little bit after. You can even have women um, in their mid to late 40s experiencing menopause. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so now that would be, now that's not, so there's menopause and then there's premenopausal. So what do you, go ahead. Yeah, so, pre, so the definition of menopause is 12 months without a period. So until okay. you reach that 12 months, then you're not fully into menopause. Premenopause is basically the years preceding that time. So typically I would say it's about three to five years preceding the onset of menopause. Um, and that's usually when women start to have some symptoms, most commonly hot flashes, sometimes night sweats, um, sometimes insomnia, mood changes, decreased libido, um, a lot mm-hmm. of these are very sort of common symptoms. Some women have none. Some women have mm. all, unfortunately. And mm-hmm. most women, I would say, have, you know, some here and there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that the, the menopause um, is, whew, it, it's a lot. It's a lot, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a lot because our bodies are changing um and you have to relearn yourself like all over again, mm-hmm. you know. And so I'm finding that women um, that are experiencing this part of their life, I guess it's the autumn season of their life, um, you know, they also have to share what they're going through with their family members <laughs> right, just to, right. I guess, warn and alert them <laughs> Mm-hmm. Of what's taking place in our bodies. Right. So so what advice do you have for women that are just starting off because it's kind of daunting like when you're you know you're so used to you know your body operating in one way for so long and then all of a sudden bing you know, here I am, and now everything's changing. And then the stigma with menopause where people, you know, think that, you know, we start to lose our minds or we go crazy or we're angrier or, you know. So what advice do you have for women who are just starting to experience it? And then how long does it last? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say the length of time varies, um, but once women have, you know, completed that 12 months without a period, and sometimes the period can be irregular, 
women can skip six, seven, eight months and then get another period, and then the clock starts over. Mm. So they have to go a consecutive 12 months um, with absolutely no bleeding for it to be true menopause. Um, mm-hmm. But the, I would say, you know, the best advice I could give them is, first of all, it's it's natural. This is a natural process. This is what is supposed to be happening to your bodies. Um, I think there has to be a little bit of an acceptance that things are going to change and you may not feel exactly the same or look the same way, and that's okay. Um, Mm -hmm. But just, you know, kind of going with it, I would say, you know, I always tell all my patients to optimize their lifestyle factors because I think that plays such a huge role in how women do go through menopause. And we find that women who have really good lifestyle um, factors, they tend to have decreased symptoms. So that would be, you know, just optimizing their diet, um, mm-hmm. exercise, minimizing alcohol intake, obviously no smoking. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes supplementation can play a role. Um, but mm-hmm. these are all important things to do as your body is changing. Now, when you say supplements, what are you talking about? Well, there are a lot of supplements out there in terms of vitamins and things like that. And mm-hmm. for the most part, I'm not a big proponent of vitamins per se, um, just because I think our body, you know, really absorbs so little of what is in a vitamin. But for those people who are missing certain things in their diet just because of, say, you know, dietary restrictions or sensitivity or their doctors find that they're just low, like specifically one thing is vitamin D, um, a large percentage of the population tends to be low just because we don't get um, all the sunlight exposure that we should um, right. This is an important supplement to take if we are low. And most mm-hmm. primary care doctors do check these levels um, in routine blood work. Right, and that's a good thing. So, um, and then did you answer as far as how long does menopause last? Because some people think that it's only, okay, well, you're only going to have it for a year or two years. And I've known people who started off in their 50s and now they're in like their 70s and they say, no, I'm still, you know, going through such and such. So why does right. it last so long? Is that like a lifetime thing for the second part of our lives or what? I know. It's, yeah, and you know, we can't really predict it. Sometimes you can look yeah. at genetic factors and, you know, sometimes I'll ask women, you know, do you know about when your mom went through it or your older sisters, things like that. But there's some women, unfortunately, who, even years after the last period, will continue to have some symptoms. Now, usually mm-hmm. we see the symptoms will peak um, within within a few years of menopause and then go down, meaning that, okay. you know, hot flashes, night sweats will space out, um, things will become more manageable, um, it will not be life-altering or inhibit their activities or anything like that. Um, yeah. Usually, you know, we'll talk to patients about how these symptoms are impacting their lives and if they're really finding that they're holding back on their normal activities or it's preventing them from doing things that they would normally otherwise do then we probably need to address it yeah that's yeah because um it's like I said, it's a lot that we go through. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I found, too, and I just want you to kind of, um, you know, reiterate, too, about the foods that we eat. And a lot of times I'm, what I'm finding is that the certain foods that we eat also affect, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um Uh, the changes that our body is going through. And then when I stopped certain things, my hot flashes weren't as bad or, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? They were more infrequent than um, when the, you know, if I, if I continue to eat, let's say meat or this or that. So can you, you know, verify that um, it's definitely like our dietary um, part is very important. It's a very important aspect, like just just all in general, but especially at this time in our lives. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, diet is extremely important not only for menopause, but just in general in terms of aging, um, bone health, and also minimizing cancer risk factors. So right. typically, you know, the whole foods um, diet, which is, maximizing fruits, vegetables, whole grains, limiting fats and oils and sugars, 
is probably um, a much healthier diet in the long run. Um, mm-hmm. Not only that, but there's things that are in certain fruits and vegetables called phytoestrogens, which are chemicals mm-hmm. that these plants carry, which may act almost like an estrogen hormone in your body without the negative effects. And so right. women who sometimes maximize this type of a diet during menopause may get some benefit from it. Um, I'm not going to say it's you know, going to take away all their symptoms, but it certainly right. will help. Right, right. That's good. That's good advice right there because, you know, we don't recognize um, that what we put in our bodies really it, it it really affects us, and especially as we get older because when we're younger we think we're invincible. You know what I mean? Right. We can just eat yeah. and drink and do whatever, whatever, but then that kind of catches up to you after a while. Sure so, yeah. yeah, it would behoove you to start now just paying attention to what we are putting in our bodies because it really makes a big difference. Um, and another thing, too, with um, on, um, the gynecological – going to see their GYN, okay, <laughs> um, that – is in is an important factor um, as far as your colon screening. Um, I think a lot of women aren't even aware because people. What I'm seeing is that a lot of women don't go regularly, or they haven't been in a while for whatever reason, mm-hmm. um, and they don't understand how the, everything that you get when you do go for your visits, and colon screening is one of those. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Sure. Um, So colon screening is one of the cancer screenings. So if we were to look at, you know, some of the basic cancer screenings for women, PAPs are age 21. That's the PAP smear that we talked about before. Mammograms are for breast screening, um, breast cancer, and that starts at age 40. And colon cancer, um, the American Cancer Society has actually recommended that people of average risk should start screening at 45. Um, And there's, yeah, and there's actually, you know, you can do a colonoscopy, which is the traditional test Mm -hmm. where they, you know, use some anesthesia and then they look into the colon with a camera. Um, Mm -hmm. But you can also do some of these newer tests, which are the stool tests, um, you know, Usually your doctor will make that decision with you depending on your risk factors. Right. So that may be an option as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, ladies, um, we are talking about a total, like, um, thorough um, physical here um, for your just for your body, just for your, you know, your your health, for your health care, it's how it's so important. It is so important because it's preventive maintenance. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we don't know what's going to be down the road and around the corner, but you want to be up on your body and what's going on with it. Um, and especially women, you know, our bodies are, I think, for me, I'm just thinking it's a, a bit more complicated than a man's body. We have so much more that we need to look out for. Um, and I know that women that are on birth control, okay, here's another question from a young lady, birth control. So how, even if you're not um, like sexually active, is it okay to take birth control? And if so, Why? So that's a great question because, you know, a lot of people think birth control is only for the prevention of pregnancy, but Mm -hmm. we actually use birth control for a lot of different reasons, and some of those reasons Mm -hmm. would be um, irregular periods, sometimes heavy periods, PMS symptoms. We even use it sometimes for people who have acne that's hard to control. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of of different reasons out there that we give birth control for, and it's been really, Mm -hmm. really um, a useful tool for a lot of patients. Now, how young can one start on birth control? I don't know that there's an age minimum, mm-hmm. but, you know, I do have a lot of young teens that are on birth control for various reasons, not just um, for contraception. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And usually, you know, we make that decision together and also with with. Um, a parent, usually a mom, and a lot of times it has to do with 
just really heavy periods or periods that are extremely painful. And sometimes girls are missing school or missing their activities. Um, and it's really causing a lot of um, just impacting on their life. And so starting something that could potentially ease this um, or prevent them from missing out on these things actually will help them out a lot in the long run. Okay. Um, that's good to know uh, because I think a lot of people are kind of confused as far as exactly, you know, what is the birth control. They they actually just think that it is for, you know, stopping them from getting pregnant. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's good to know. And I thank the young lady. Her name is Tamara, actually, who sent in that question. Um, and then there's another question, um, and I, this was, I, tr- I think, addressed early on. Um, and this one is from a Pam, um, and she wanted to know what are some of the questions that my OBGYN will ask during my visit? Hmm. So it, it depends on the, the age of the patient, but, you know, your mm-hmm. OBGYN will take a full history, um, and they will want to know, you know, of course, you know, your health history and what kind of medications you take, your family history, um, but specifically, they'll want to know, because we're gynecologists, we'll ask about your menstrual history. Um, if you're not having menstrual periods anymore and you're menopausal, we want to know about your pelvic floor. So how are you mm-hmm. uh, managing your bladder control and bowel movements and all the things that you know go along with that pelvic area. Um, we also talk about breasts and breast health and um, mm. If they examine their breasts and if they are noticing any changes there and if they've been up to date with their screenings. Yes, that was another thing on my list to talk about, so I'm glad that you brought that up. Your mammogram. Oh, and, sexu- um, and sexual health. I forgot to mention that that's an important part of um, GYN visits, you know, at okay. many different mm-hmm. ages as well. Yeah. Okay, what is that? And you said well, infectional health? No, sexual. Sexual health. Oh, sexual. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> sexual health. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, just because it's it's an important part of life, and especially in the menopausal oh, yeah. range, a lot Absolutely. of women, you know, have some decrease in sexual desire or painful sex, and we talk about, um, you know, some of the ways to manage that. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, and that's that's definitely an important thing, um, especially for women who, like you know, are going through menopause. I mean, again, mm-hmm. that's a, your your whole life has changed <laughs> pretty right. much. Absolutely. The way that you, Every, mm-hmm. yeah, the way you used to do things, you just don't, you know, they're just you have to learn a new way of living um, from that. So, going into the mammograph screening. So what age is that? Okay, so let's start there as far as the breast examinations. Like um, how often should we be checking our breasts as young ladies? And Mm -hmm. when do we start the mammograph screenings? Right. So we do recommend that women become familiar with their bodies and with their breasts. So Mm -hmm. I counsel women to try to examine their breasts at least maybe once a month or so, the best time to do it is after they have a period, just because the breasts are the least tender and the less cystic at that point. Um, Mm -hmm. And basically they want to just, they can do it in the shower, raise your arm up and you feel firmly all along the breast tissue. And as long as you're not feeling anything that's like a lump, a bump, a pee, something that's very Mm -hmm. painful or something that comes Mm -hmm. out of your nipple like discharge, then that's Mm -hmm. probably just fine. If they're feeling mm-hmm. anything that they're concerned about, then they should, you know, definitely let their doctor know. Right. And then mammograms start at age 40. Okay. Unless they have, patients have a strong family history or personal risk factors, and we may decrease that then. So pe- women with, say, a family uh, history like a mother or sister with breast cancer, usually we would start them screening earlier. Now, I have a funny, well, it's not, well, it's kind of funny uh, story about the mammogram screening because you said at the age of 40, and that's mm-hmm. actually when I did um, start mine, and I, I was afraid to go, um, and I think a lot of women are afraid because they don't know what to expect when mm-hmm. they go, and I know for me that was my biggest issue, 
And until, you know, I was working um, at a company and the um, president and CEO of the company in which I was, um, you know, kind of like her right hand um, and she had developed breast cancer. So I would take her in for her treatments and so on and so forth. And, you know, she was asking me, she said, well, um, when are you going in for your mammogram? And I said, I don't know, and then I just told her why and so on and so forth, and she was like, no, you need to go. She explained the process to me. She said, it's not painful, so it's not painful, ladies, Um, and how important it was, and I think for me, I think I was more afraid of them finding something, which sounds silly, but I felt like at the time it was better if I didn't know. I, I think I was just scared that they were going to find something. So the fear of that, as well as not knowing what to expect, not knowing if it was going to hurt, all these things that were going through my mind until I finally went and I did it. And I was like, okay, that was it. That was all. It was painless. But at the same time, I was glad that I did, and I started going on a regular basis because, again, it's preventive maintenance. Mm -hmm. You know, things can change at any time. But we have to stop uh, with the fear of of the not knowing. We want to know. Correct. You know, and then the earlier you find out, the better, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And I do have a lot of patients who say, you know, I don't have a family history, um, so therefore – you know, I think I don't need to go. And that mm-hmm. really is, is mm. false thinking because most breast yeah. cancers, in fact, are not inherited breast cancers. Right. So most Say that again, Dr. Zaff. Say that again. Most breast cancers that are diagnosed are not genetic. Mm, okay. So they do not come from genetic factors. Okay. Yeah, they're isolated. Okay. So even yeah, if you feel like, you know what, I have a great family history, I don't have anyone in my family, that's that's good, but it does not mean that you couldn't get an isolated breast cancer. You right. Could, which which right. is why women, even if they're healthy, they have no symptoms, they have normal exams, should get a mammogram because the benefit of a mammogram is that hopefully it would detect a very small lesion even before mm. we could palpate it or feel it on an exam. Right, right. Yeah, I, I just, I highly, highly, highly recommend that if you're at that age of 40, ladies out there, please just go. Um, even if you even if you missed your 40th or your mm-hmm. 41st, so if, well, start today, start where you are. And just start, you know, um, getting that regular checkup. And actually, um, uh, most insurances cover a yearly exam. So it's not like you even have to pay, you know, out of pocket for that. You know, that's something that's included. So whatever your insurance is included, and I believe also your yearly or however for your checkup, for your GYN checkups, I believe that's covered as well. That's um, correct. Most most insurances will cover an annual checkup. And, in fact, yeah. mammograms, because it's a cancer screening, you don't mm. even technically need a doctor's slip. You can self-refer, right. um, mm-hmm. but the result, obviously, will have to go to a doctor eventually. Right, your primary care um, I, doctor. So, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, when you first got your mammogram, how scared you were. And I think that's a common fear that a lot of us have. I mean, it's it's it is a scary thing because basically you're looking to make sure that you don't have breast cancer. Yeah. All of us probably know someone with a breast cancer. Yeah. But I do have patients who, who do it in a really kind of cool way and they, you know, go with someone. So they have a buddy system, they have a friend or they go with their sister or a mom and daughter will go together just to kind of make it a little easier. You have a support. um, That's a great idea. You have also, yeah, someone to kind of make you accountable for getting your test yeah. done. Yeah, that's a great idea. That's a great idea, ladies. So, yeah, if you're afraid, you know, take somebody with you. Um, and it only lasts, I mean, it's over before you know it. It, it goes yeah. by so quickly. It's about um, three, but minutes, I just can't, three to five minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I just can't stress enough, you know, go. Stop being afraid and just go. Um, and I and when you said it's not hereditary, um, is that the same as far as, like, um, 
women who may need a hysterectomy or they have blood clots or whatever, you know, our bodies are not our mother's bodies. So if my mother has X, Y, Z, that doesn't mean that I'm going to get it. Right. I mean, there's a lot of things that can be passed down. And, you know, in fact, we know a lot about genetics, but we don't know everything. So sometimes even when we see that there are cancers in a family, but yet genetic tests are negative, um, I don't know that it means there isn't a genetic reason. We just maybe haven't found it. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's just, you know, also I always, you know, just tell my patients we can't change our genes. We're born who we are, um, but we can make good choices. And so the only thing that we really can control are, you know, certainly our diet, our exercise, our mental health, um, spirituality, just positive behavior and attitudes. And I think that really does play into overall um, health. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was my last point, the mental health awareness. Um, That to me is like at the very tippy top (laughs) because everything starts in the mind and ends with the mind, if you you know, in my opinion. Um, And so if you start with the mind and the mindset of, you know, my body is important, I'm important, um, then the rest will really follow because it's self-love. We have to love ourselves enough to care enough to go and really start taking care of our mind, bodies, and our spirit, actually. So, Dr. Zapp, thank you so much. This time went by so fast. We didn't have any callers today, but that's okay. I did have some questions. I fit some questions in there that were sent to us. And as you can see, the time is like it just shot by. Like it just goes by so quickly. But you have given us some absolutely wonderful information and things to think about um, and so is there any, you know, last things that you would like to share with um, our listening audience before we, before we let you go? Um, I would just say be, be positive um, going into this scary time that we're in right now. Um, even though you may not be able to see your loved ones or your friends, you can still communicate with them. You can pray for them. Um, yeah. I saw something on the Internet recently, and they were – you know, just saying in this kind of a time we're living in, we should try to, you know, be more positive and maybe do one positive thing every day for someone else, whether that's, you know, sending a text to someone you haven't talked to in a long time or checking in on someone, um, you know, making something for your neighbor and dropping dropping it off at their doorstep or or whatever. But just try to to make someone else's day um, a little bit easier and, and brighter. Oh, absolutely. That's wonderful. Well, Dr. Zaff, thank you again so much uh, for coming on and sharing with us. And hopefully we'll have you back, um, you know, to come back on and and talk some more. Um, Because, again, we can't hear this stuff enough. I just, we just can't. So thank you, Lisa. Thank Thank you you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Yes, ma'am. You enjoy it. And stay safe out there. I will. You as well. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was Dr. Sonia Zaft. She is so amazing, and I just, again, want to thank her. But before I do, before we leave, I just want to leave you with this. We're down to that part of the show. Maya Angelou once said, if I am not good to myself, how can I expect anyone else to be good to me? And that sounds so simple, but yet it is so profound. As women, we often take a back seat when it comes to taking care of ourselves. We take care of everything and everyone else around us before we focus on our own well-being. We will set up appointments for our parents, our children, our spouses, but won't take the time to set regular checkups for ourselves. I'm not just talking about our physical health either. I'm talking about our overall well-being, mind, body, and spirit. And as women, we need to do better. We need to take the necessary time to care for ourselves. Step off that merry-go-round of the everyday rat race and plug ourselves into our own inner guidance System, our intuition, so we can hear what it is saying to us. She tells us when we need to stop. She tells us 
when we need to go to a medical professional to see about this or to see about that. Checkups are usually once a year. They are also there for preventive maintenance. By going to get a regular checkup, you will know just how your body is doing and if it needs anything in order to keep you functioning on a healthy level. Again, this is not just for the physical aspect of our health, but also for the mental side of it as well, especially the mental side. Mental health is vital to our overall well-being. So take time out to seek counsel without feeling guilty about needing to talk to someone who is a trained professional. My goodness, as much as we deal with on a day-to-day basis, I truly sometimes don't know how we survive. Ladies, it's really okay to need help. We have to take away the stigma of showing our vulnerability. Yes, we are superwomen most of the time, but there are those times when we are not and we need to do some extra TLC. It's okay. It's okay. Don't we give TLC to everybody else? So we really need to start giving it back to ourselves. So in closing, I would love to see more of us encouraging one another to take the time to do an overhaul on our health and well-being. Start making time for your regular checkups, whether they are to your GYN, which includes pap smears and mammograms, and um, uh, see your primary care doctor, your dental, your therapist, any or all of those, just like we take care of everyone else, we need to start taking better care of ourselves. So once again, if I'm not good to myself, how can I expect anyone else to be good to me? So that concludes our show for this evening. Once again, I want to thank um everyone for tuning in and listening to us. Shout out to my family who are always loving and supporting me and also to all of my friends and colleagues in all of my social networking sites. Once again, a big thank you to Dr. Sonia Zaft for taking the time to share a big part of her journey and her expertise and her wisdom with us. We are eternally grateful for you. Also, don't forget to stop by my website, yourdestinyawaits.net to get some extra motivation and inspiration and leave a message so that we know that you stop by. Also like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash a date with destiny 101 and follow us on Twitter, L-Y-S-E 101. Make sure you come back and tune in next Monday at 6.30 Eastern Standard Time. And always remember, folks, that real power comes from knowledge because knowledge is power. And when we know better, we do better. So your mission, if you choose to accept it, is take the necessary time to do a true self-evaluation. Seek God and learn how to love yourself first because, after all, you owe it to yourself to know yourself. Once again, I'm Lisa M. Saunders, and thank you for tuning in to Blog Talk Radio's A Date with Destiny. Peace and abundant blessings, everyone.